Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by BowlAndBranch.com, offering luxury bedding at affordable prices. Order right now and they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. Get sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, and more at BowlAndBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. And use the promo code CULTURE. And by Tracker, a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Make losing things a thing of the past. Get 30% off your first tracker device by going to thetracker.com and using the promo code CULTURE. And by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umqua Bank and hosted by Sujin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, What Kind of Preacher Are You? edition. It's Wednesday, May 25th, 2016. On today's show, Neighbors 2 stars Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne as a young couple battling with the rogue sorority next door. And then AMC returns to super edgy TV with the bloodlusty show Preacher. And finally, is the adverb everywhere and always the enemy of good writing? We discuss an essay by New York Magazine's Christian Lawrenson. Joining me today is Slate's book and culture critic, Laura Miller. Hey, Laura. Hi, Steve. And of course, um, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello. Uh, I hasten to add that Dana Stevens is... uh, is not completely a wall. She's off on a um, book leave and will be returning in two weeks. Is that right? I think that's right. Yep. Fantastic news. Um, Julia, before we dig in, um, what uh, business do we have? Well, I should tell our listeners what we're going to be discussing in our Slate Plus segment today, which is a really fascinating package of interviews that the LA Review of Books, which I guess, do you pronounce it LARB, like the Thai food? <laughs> I think I think so, in yeah. my head, I think of it as LARB, like the Thai food. In any event, uh, LARB has LARBed it up with some uh, interviews with professors working in the digital humanities. So we have read them and we'll discuss them and hopefully deepen the conversation we've had. If you're a member, you can stay tuned and look forward to that. If you're not, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, moving on. Neighbors 2 is the sequel to Yes, Neighbors 1, the same movie, but with a gender flip, this time a rogue and out of control sorority has moved in next door to Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, wreaking party havoc on their lives, havoc that only amps up as the grown-ups intent on selling their house decide to fight back. In addition to Rogan and Byrne, the movie stars Zac Efron and Chloe Grace Moretz. Let's listen to a clip. You guys thinking about renting this place? Maybe. 
What do you guys want with such a big house? We're starting our own sorority outside the system that can totally do whatever it wants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like throw dope ass parties and totally rage. A sorority that can party? Cap new. What's wrong with fraternity parties? <laughs> okay, what is it? I mean, we threw great parties here. Pimps and hoes, CEOs and corporate hoes, <laughs> Boise boys in Idaho's. They're like super sexist. <laughs> Every party is like themed ho. I mean, oh jeez. Oh no. Oh god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, we're laughing. That's a good sign. All right, listen, Julia. I know I'm not imagining things. Within the first thirty seconds, if that of this movie, we get a puke joke, a poop joke, and yes, a dildo joke. Nonetheless, for all the juvenile antics, this movie has a feminist gloss. We heard a little bit of it in that clip. You buying it? Uh, am I buying the feminist gloss? Sure. Sure. I mean, what does it mean to buy a gloss? Yes, there is a feminist gloss to this movie. There's actually been some interesting debate online about how seriously we should take the, you know, liberal gender role challenging politics of this film, which I find a little bit ridiculous. There's a camp of people who say this film is surprisingly progressive. And then there's a camp of people more on Twitter than in articles who've been saying, I don't buy your fake woke corporate bullshit, Hollywood. (laughs) Fake woke. Hashtag fake woke. Uh, And I would say, I mean, I understand that the whole purpose of our show here is to critically assess texts and their underlying meanings. But I think there's something to be said for fake wokeness, actually. Like, I think there's something to be said that, like, the baseline of a Hollywood comedy is, like, let's start with more characters of color and more like let's just take that as a as a baseline and not actually say anything particularly interesting about it but try it in part because it's where culture is today and in part because it uh, updates the jokes a bit you get to make a different set of jokes when you're starting from different premises so the there's a very funny moment early on where chloe grace moretz and a couple of other freshmen are eagerly attending the sort of pledge intro to a more traditional sorority and they learn that sororities are technically not allowed to host parties in their houses. But they're clearly nodding at a true fact, which is that sororities cannot host parties where they serve alcohol in their own domiciles and the kind of inherent patronizing, paternalistic patriarchy, other negative P words of it is outraging. So the movie sort of breaks the third wall a little bit, or at least winks at doing so. I guess it's the fourth wall. Fuck, it's a triangular movie. <laughs> God damn it. It breaks a lot of third walls. It's true. There, yeah, the wall between the two houses is like a, is fraught. It's a garage fraught. wall. It's yeah. a fraught environment. Yeah, there's a garage wall. Yeah, a lot of walls coming down. In any event, the movie breaks the fourth wall and sort of winks at this notion that this is actually true, that frats get to, frats are treated more like grownups and, and women are treated in this more infantilized way in the, in the uh, Greek system which we should not be surprised by. But it's barbed and funny and kind of an exciting launch point for our premise. Mm. Laura, did you find the movie funny? Did you like it as a movie? We can get to its feminist politics uh, in a little bit, but let's let's thumbs up and thumbs down at first. Well, I thought parts of it were funny. I thought that it had a kind of lackadaisical pacing so that there were sort of stretches of it that were just kind of like, all right, you know. And then occasionally there are parts that were that I really did laugh at, like the point at which Zach Efron says there's no I in sorority and someone says yes and then they all try to spell it and none of them can get it right. And there's there's something sort of the performers really carry that off 
well. I mean, they're 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 good at sort of the sort of basic lazy level that people try to be correct and then are constantly stumbling over themselves while at the same time knowing that they're blowing it, which I thought was a kind of a nice, sharp observation of contemporary social life. But then I felt like the sorority itself was sort of weirdly characterized because at the beginning there's girls talking in the dorms and they they're having this sort of real girl conversation and then when they decide to have their party house their party is just basically I don't know it's not that appealing I mean it's better than the frat boy party you didn't think the feminist powerhouse costume party looked like fun Sort of. It seemed too cartoony. Actually, the one party moment that seemed really true and joyful and feminist to me was the one at the end where they've been trying to raise money by charging guys to come to their party. So they throw a more traditional frat sort of party, which the way the frat party that puts them off frat parties is depicted in the movie is basically it's a strip club where the women all work for free <laughs> and, and um, hey sometimes to work and um, and so they sort of have to simulate this because they're having it's basically a rent party but then when they decide they don't want to do that after all they kick all these guys out and they have this party and there's this great shot of first this pile of high heels empty high heels like lying on the floor and then all of these bare these girls in socks dancing, like the feet jumping up and down. And I thought that worked more effectively for me than the feminist icons party. That did look really fun. However, the thing I was puzzling over in that shot is like, was the floor of that, like, why couldn't they act in bare feet? Was there some kind of like wart problem or like nobody (laughs) wears those little cute socks with high heels? So the notion that all the girls from the more traditional sorority Somehow, like, did they have like a bin of socks, like the peds at the shoe store? Uh, anyway, I did love that moment, but I also yeah. had a costuming question, yeah. which is yeah. like, what's just the logistics of filming such that they didn't want like 50 barefoot people in this house where they had a lot of like fake beer? Was it sticky? Like, could these people not sacrifice the soles of their bare feet for their craft? Considering the other things that they did, it seems like they'd be willing to to do that. Yeah. I, I had such a motley reaction to this movie. On the one hand, I kind of buy, the, I totally agree with Julia on the fake woke. Uh, advances of Hollywood. Let's treat them as real. The movies seems to, this movie in particular, seems to have completely transcended homophobia. There's a, a very early on a gay engagement scene. It's it's played for laughs, but also with love and real affection. I really, really like uh, Zac Efron's character, as, as I think Kitty Waldman called him, the sort of post-frat bro, frat bro, the first of a new kind, a guy who just wants to be valued by the world and no one will do it. One thing I will say, though, is that the sheer volume of jokes, the way American comedies are now written strikes me as interesting. They've taken their lead completely from television. They don't bother with character development or story arc whatsoever. I mean, there's a difference between us. To the degree there's a difference between a story arc and a plot, they have um, a plot but no real arc. Um, it's a series of events playing out in an orderly fashion, coming to a you know reasonably predictable conclusion. Um, there's certainly no character development, um, which is fine, but it just it measures the difference from when Tootsie was considered like a great American comedy. You're not making that movie ever again. Instead, it's much more like television table writing style of script making in which clearly credited writers, producers, executive producers, and possibly even the actor and the director themselves throw everything in in order to get a super high volume of jokes. And I don't know to what degree this is 
science or chaos, but they're clearly expecting only, say, 15 or 20% of those jokes to land with someone like me, who's not inclined to love a movie like this, and another 20% to land with, you know, um, a 14-year-old boy, and on and on and on. But but does no one else find this style slightly... I was surprised, Laura, to hear you say lackadaisical. I find it frenetic and extremely jittery and fast and nervous as if they're going to um, bore you. Oh, well, I don't mean to cut Laura off. I think the jokes per minute on this is is like not to 30 Rock or Simpsons level at all. No, I, I see no. what Laura is saying. I think, but I think we actually might be saying something similar. There's a way that a comedy can start out being a bunch of sort of situational jokes. And then as the characters become sharper or clearer or more real to the audience, you can ratchet up the tension by y- making the characters the basis of the joke. And they sort of do that with the Zac Efron character. Because he he's the character that has some kind of development, or at least he's more pronounced. I mean, most of the other characters are pretty thin, and it's the movie is kind of about his character and his attempt to find a place in the world. And so with 30 Rock, for example, we knew those characters so well that by the time we got to the end, there were certain jokes that only really worked because you knew who those characters were. And they were they felt that much sharper and more intense because of that. And, and I think this movie doesn't really succeed at that because every character but the Zac Efron character is is kind of thin and kind of static. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did either of you guys see Neighbors 1? I didn't, I'm afraid. Did you, Steve? <laughs> I did not. I mean, I, w- I highly recommend it. Like, you guys should definitely both watch it. It's much better than this movie. Um, and I think this movie is kind of wallowing. There was a bit more character work in the Burn rogan marriage i think in that movie they're they're kind of like figuring out their relationship to being parents in a way that is feels a little bit more real and pressing than in this one where they're like ah do we suck probably not we're probably fine you know it's it's sort of just like they're touching on the work that they did in the first movie um the kind of hierarchy and relationships among the guys in the frat are really specific and interesting and i think actually the relationship among the women in the movie for all of the fake wokeness of the premise their their interactions are a little bit more cookie cutter. They're friends. It means so much to them. Yeah. They're not. They they they're mad. They're friends again. It means so much to them. But the in the first movie, among the men, each individual pairing. You know, if there's five or ten guys in the fret, each individual relationship had its own distinct character. And that's not really true among the young women in this movie. So maybe it is mm-hmm. fake woke after all. The rampant <laughs> sexism of pretending that that a. Chloe Grace Moretz is a three-dimensional figure. I think they just have a hard time finding a way for the sorority to be sort of feminist or girl positive, let's say. And then also the sort of setting for sort of a, you know, gross behavior that you would, you know, Cheetos in your hair or whatever. You know, like they it's like not as funny for them to be gross or But it is, I think we are getting to something interesting here, which is part of why this movie feels less satisfying than the first. And I promise that the first really does feel satisfying is that the relationships among the women are are not as fully realized as the relationships among the men were in that movie. And I'm thinking about that party scene. I mean, as someone who threw elaborate nerdy costume parties in college, the premise of a party that's around uh, feminist icons 
doesn't seem wrong to me. But what was missing from that party is boys. Like the notion is that there is no version of female sexuality that works, right? Like they don't yeah. posit an alternative to the bros and hoes party sexuality. What the women find in the sorority is like refuge and an ability to like have Cheetos in their hair amongst each other. But there's no there's no moment where a girl has Cheetos in her hair but like has a actual interesting relationship with a, a male peer that is like lewd or funny or saucy or anything else. You know, they're kind of when they're in their safe, empowered version of the sorority, it's women only. And so the, the movie can't quite get to a place where where it's actually positing like a new fun reality. Even that party you mentioned with the socked feet you know, it eventually zooms up and you see it over top and it's just like all women at the party, which like, hey, dancing with your girlfriends, not to be not very, very fun. But like the point isn't that you just like skip sex. And actually one of the parties they quickly skip past when they're first like breaking in the house is a party where uh, the Chloe Grace Moretz character who we learn early on is a virgin. There's like a Chloe loses her virginity party. But that just like happens as a scene of like the women, the other women in the sorority lifting her in a chair like it's her wedding and there's like no man around. Like, <laughs> it's unclear how this has happened or why. Who, I mean, it makes it you was, wonder yeah. if there was like a plot that got cut or something. Well, know. it may just also be that they felt like if they included any kind of romance element that that would seem to be diluting the sisterhood. But that's thing. the thing. They're not, they're not at odds. That, that might be beyond the moral imagination of <laughs> even the newly woke Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. At least, at least so far. Maybe they'll be apologizing for this movie in eight years, and they'll make a, they'll make an even better one. All right. Well, looking forward to Neighbors Three. Then, anyway, the movie is Neighbors Two. It's with Seth Rogen, Rose Byrne, various others, Zac Efron. Uh, go see it. Check it out. Let us know what you thought, or if you've seen Neighbors One and you agree with Julia Turner, it's a cornerstone in American cinema economy, uh, comedy. <laughs> Come to our Facebook page and say at facebook.com/slash/culturefest. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you this week by Bowl and Branch. Regular listeners will know that I'm a big advocate of spending time, energy, and money making your bed as awesome as it can possibly be. Obviously, you sleep there. That's restorative and important. I feel like the moment of pleasure that you get when you slip into a delicious bed at the end of the day is one to cherish and to promote. And I've also recently been thinking about my bed as a place for hanging out with my children. My husband and I are hardliners on co-sleeping. We do not co-sleep. The children do not sleep with us. They have never slept with us. They will never sleep with us. It's awfully snuggly, but it ruins your life as far as I can tell, and we're never going to do it. However, the kind of like crawling into bed once everybody's awake in, on a weekend morning and and playing uh, is really fun. And my sons and I... Uh, played a really fun under the sheets game where we're kind of made a tent out of the sheets and we're hanging out under there and chit-chatting and laughing and where you make a a kind of cozy fortress is just unbeatable. Ball and Branch can help you in your pursuit of a better bed. They have reimagined sheets by cutting out the middlemen, markups, and the chain store mentality to deliver luxury sheets for a fraction of the price you'd pay elsewhere. You can only get their sheets in one place, that's bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality and not department store overhead. You're getting $1,000 sheets for just a couple hundred bucks. Go online to bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com. They'll let you try them risk-free for 30 nights. I love this. That's a really hard thing to find with sheets elsewhere. And if you don't absolutely love the sheets, you can send them back. You literally have nothing to lose. It gets even better. Go to bowlandbranch.com today and use the promo code CULTURE for 20% off your entire order. Sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, plus free shipping. Again, that's bowlandbranch.com for 20% off your entire order. 
Use the promo code CULTURE. All right, moving on. Preacher is spiky and weird, and the critics certainly seem to love it. The new AMC show takes place in godforsaken Duskscape, known as Anvil, Texas, where a troubled young man of the cloth named Jesse Custer, already gripped by his inner demons, finds himself invaded by an outer one. The show is a genre-busting gore fest. It's based on the graphic novel of the same name. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip. No sermon today. You're welcome for that. Try not to punch anyone either. I do have an announcement. The other night, someone asked me why I'd come back to Anvil. I didn't have an answer for her. I've let you down. Week after week, I've been just another man that hurts by not helping. I've not had a single morning where I I didn't wake up and have to force my feet to the floor to face you. Bottom line is I've been a bad preacher. And for that, I'm sorry. All right, well, Laura, why don't I start with you? Um, I have to admit, I'm not sure whether you have a global theory of the graphic novel. And I'm not sure hearing what it is is necessary to this segment. But I'd love to hear it if you do. I'm curious whether you read them and um, what you make of this uh, um, version of this particular graphic novel. Well, I do read them. But this one, this is a sort of a venerable, if you can say that about something that comes from the 1990s. Um, I think of this, of, of the, the graphic novel series of the comic series of Preacher as being really very typical of this, the Vertigo imprint of DC yeah, comics, which also did Neil Gaiman's great series Sandman. Um, the, there's a particular flavor to it that is very 90s sort of alt comics, but not, it's not even really alt. It's like a a kind of an indie feel in a sort of a mainstream comic. And it's, you know, very complex. And then it's also very dark in this way that you, it feels like it's trying to please an audience of teenage boys who like nothing more than to think about how shocked their mom or their teacher would be to see this. And, <laughs> and so the level of like violence and sort of brooding moroseness feels a, a little callow. But on the other hand, it's also stylish and, and clever and, and interesting and breaking the form and, in, in other interesting ways. So I sort of have a mixed feeling about that, about this sort of vein of comics. But I, I liked the show. I mean, I, I have a pretty high tolerance for violence. I did feel like the violence in this was like a little of the, again, imagining how shocked some more staid person would be by it. But I liked the cinematic sort of flair with which it was filmed. And uh, I liked all the performances, and I thought the dialogue was really smart. It reminds me, to a weird degree, of Justified, a show that I was also really fond of. It's funny that you say that, Laura, because as I watch this, I wonder whether America has run out of moms to be shocked. I mean, there's, I, I completely agree with you implied in so much programming, including Neighbors 2, is a fuddy-duddy who just is so up their own bloomers, they can't take a joke, or they can't take you know, edgy violence. And very often, I think to myself, 
you know, this is programming made by people who think the word edgy still signifies. And um, when in fact, everybody is sort of in on the joke now, and it's not really necessary to attack this superego with um, either violent or juvenile uh, programming. I, I thought the level of violence in this show, to put it simply, shocked me. Well, you are a fuddy-duddy then, Steve. You're the last fuddy-duddy. Shocked last mom one. Steve Metcalf. I'm just going <laughs> to, instead of like Crooked Hillary and Lion Ted, I'm going to call you Shocked Mom Steve Metcalf. Shocked mm-hmm. Mom Steve. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I watched this show. I made microwave popcorn and went and cowered in my minivan. I mean, the question is, could you get past that and see yes. other things worthwhile about it? And I mean, I did not f- and really do not feel that way about the Walking Dead, and maybe it's, that's because I pretty much saw every zombie movie released in the eighties and nineties, and so by the time Walking Dead came around, I felt like I was really zombied out, and it wasn't going anywhere that interesting. But I that puts me in a in a sort of renegade position with reference to to popular culture right now. But you know, I feel like this has a lot of interesting things going on in it besides the cinematic flair and the mm-hmm. the violence right. and the sort of you know growling unshaven men right so i mean it's it's, it's cer- we've certainly gotten to the point where a lot of the old comic book you know tropes are animated by a theology this seems to be hugely important to virtually every one of the superhero universes right that there's some force of darkness and there's some force of light and they're you know, blended ambiguously in the protagonist, but nonetheless, if they can, um, you know, overmaster the darkness within them, they can possibly overmaster it as it's unloosed upon the world. Julia, this does not strike me as especially new, but I mean, I was completely wrong about The Walking Dead. This looks as though it's shaping up to be a big hit. Were you wrong about The Walking Dead? I didn't think much of it. I, I, I just thought it just didn't strike me as somehow sharp enough or new enough, and it became the biggest hit in the history of cable TV. So, Well, right. You were wrong about whether it would be a success, but you weren't. I, I would argue that you weren't wrong on the merits about whether it's an interesting show worth watching. I mean, I will say you can file me in the camp of, like, this violence seemed totally normal to me. It was like a, it was grisly. But to me, what was it seemed to take the violence as a given starting point. And where it seemed distinctive was that the violence is pulled off with unusual elan. I mean, we'll see if the if the show can sustain the elegance of the pilot throughout a full season of television production. But this show looks great and unfolds with cleverness. And, you know, the the uh, creators of it are Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, longtime partners, but then also Sam Catlin, who was one of the producers of Breaking Bad. And I do think you see this quality of unusual care toward visual execution in the show that I just like. I can't help it. I'm a sucker for it. I mean, and my basic response to the show was, wow, this is great. I bet it will be as big a hit as The Walking Dead. I don't particularly care to continue watching it, but I certainly admire it more than The Walking Dead, which seems like a lot of like grisly neck-chewing sounds. I mean, this show is not without grisly neck-chewing sounds. However... It just has a lot more going on. It has these, I mean, it sort of reminded me a little bit of, um, and this is another kind of alt 90s uh, ethos, but a little bit of like the Buffy verse and that it's sort of these kind of dark outcast wisecracking characters, not in the sort of kind of synthetic uh, bubblegummy way of the Joss Whedon Avengers movies, but in in the kind of particulars and delight of these various badasses. And I mean, the pilot does a great job of introducing introducing the leads of the series. I mean, there's just a couple bravura 
set pieces in a row. We meet this like drunk, bad preacher, which is a little pokey in this kind of comedically Texan, almost like a mock Friday Night Lights type uh, montage of like West Texas bullshit. And then we get this kind of very exciting high tempo introduction to Cassidy, who's an Irish kind of vampire weirdo of some sort. And then we get an incredibly badass introduction to Tulip, a warrior woman of some kind. She's a criminal. She's a she's a terrible person and a badass, but an incredibly charismatic one. Oh, completely. Yeah. And and the I mean the her character introduction is like just great, just so it's delicious. Fantastic. And you sort of you know what's happening. And once that you know ten minutes of show ends, you're like, well. I am interested to know what transpires with that young lady. Like, they, <laughs> yeah. success. You and have it, achieved it. And it looks fantastic. And there's this – she's introduced with her interaction with these two children whose farmhouse she winds up at. And she has to make a bazooka out of coffee cans and moonshine uh, in order to – fend off an incoming helicopter and she's sort of regaling these children at the same time and there's this 10-year-old girl and it's not that long of a scene but like that character of that 10-year-old girl is so distinct given the short period of time it happens in and the relationship between the two of them and the way that the film conveys how this little girl feels about her interaction with this crazy woman and it's it's just wonderful, and that's there's so much panache to it that it's it's I, yeah, I panache Alan all of the words yeah. are just like execution at a high level yeah apply yeah. to this show. All right, Steve. Well, we are we are impressed by the elegance. You're grossed out by the violence. Did you find anything of merit within it beyond the the yucks? Uh, well, I mean, I certainly can looking when I if I try to look at it dispassionately, I see that it's you know beautifully made. It's very well acted. And the Elan and the Panache are um, unrivaled, and there may even be some sprezzatura in there too. But um, <laughs> the truth is, I find that level of violence decadent, and I I'm doing them only doing the producers a favor by saying it because the whole thing seems pitched at the idea that there are uptight people who aren't with it with the kids these days. Um, so I'll be the, I'll play that part for you, um, Seth Rogen, gladly, um, and tell you that I think it's entirely decadent to have something this violent. And to the degree that people watch it without registering how inhumane it is, essentially cruel it is, and how much we're supposed to relish the spectacle of cruelty, to me, really signals something about the state of the culture. And I, I hate to be the one who says it, but there we are. And the other thing I'll say also is that, look, many, many such narratives, many of which I devoured with glee when I was younger, have a similar structure. The you know reluctant man who we sense within has the power to unleash a kind of redemptive violence if he's pushed far enough. And the craft involved is slowly and incrementally over the course of the, in this case, the hour, incrementally raising the audience's bloodlust. There is a way in which you know, it's, it's having one's cake and eating it too. I mean, by the end of that first episode, you want him to unleash, you know, fury and mayhem on this one particular character. And, you know, they play it so that he, the preacher, you know, the man of, you know, supposedly you know, Christ-like passivity in the face of violence, finally can't control himself and he does it. And But you're not sitting there rooting for him to not do it, not in any way, shape or form. If the moral basis of a show like this is to, first implant and raise, you know, torque up the bloodlust in the viewer and then 
cure them of it. Well, I didn't have it in the first place and you gave it to me, right? So I just don't, I don't really see that as, as, a, as a justification for um, the critics love it and the audiences are going to love it and 10 million people are going to watch it and I will not have the last laugh here as I did not with The Walking Dead. So there we go. Anyway, the show is called Preacher. It's on AMC. I believe you can find it streaming pretty easily if you want to catch up with the first few episodes, get in the flow of it. And uh, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell me I'm an um, old-fashioned ninny. I certainly am that. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we talk about our other sponsor. Julia Turner, what do we got? Today's Culture Gap Fest is also brought to you by Tracker. Technology has made everything smart, but losing your stuff still makes smart people feel really stupid. Uh, I have a pertinent story uh, in this realm. My husband was doing some work outside. He was lying around reading on a lawn in a park and... And then he shifted to a bench nearby and then upon the bench realized that his phone was gone. And he wasn't sure, did he drop it? He went back, he checked, he looked, and he was able to use the Find My Phone feature on iPhone to kind of realize that it had been turned off, which meant that somebody had it because he'd left it on, but he was unable to locate it because it had been turned off. Then somebody turned it on later in the day and he saw that it was an address in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, uh, and then it got immediately turned off again. So he still has yet to be reunited with his phone, unfortunately. So despite the wonderment of the Find My iPhone technology, which does allow you to see that somebody's turned on your phone in Sunset Park, it does not actually track everything because it relies on your phone being in a turned on state. Tracker makes a product that makes losing things a thing of the past. It's a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Pair it to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with the tap of a button. Listeners to this show get a special discount of 30% off your entire order. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code CULTURE. Again, that's thetracker.com, promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. If you're deploying an adverb in every sentence, you must be writing a police report or singing The Cure's Friday, I'm in Love. So writes Christian Lawrenson in New York Magazine in his broadside aimed uh, against the use and over certainly the overuse of the adverb. He goes on to say, an excess of adverbs in prose signals a general lack of vividness in verbs and adjectives. You might have to say someone ran swiftly or walked slowly, but you'd never have to qualify galloping or lumbering. Laura, you write superbly well and seemingly effortlessly. Do you do so because you follow rules or because you ignore them? Well, that's kind of a hard question to answer. I mean, everyone who writes follows some kind of rules, but I don't know that I'm a, I'm hugely wedded to mandates like I will use no adverbs, but I will confess that I often sit and wonder, is there any way I can express this using a more interesting verb. And of course, when you're a reviewer, there are a lot of adjectives that get chewed up like a stick of gum until there's no flavor left in them. And so you sometimes struggle to find different ways to say a story is incredibly engrossing, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I just use an adverb mm. right there. <laughs> I thought this essay, though, very skillfully walked the line between admitting that this is kind of a crotchet of his and then also advancing it as an argument so that it didn't, it wasn't insufferable the way some people can be about the Oxford comma and it was really well executed, but I feel like it touches on a bunch of issues that it doesn't really explore, but I'll get into those later. Right. So the thrust of my question, Julia was really 
you know, you read politics in the English language by Orwell. And what I always wonder as I read it, you know, here was a person whose writing was so lucid, uh, really as to be almost a model for everyone who tries to write English in as, you know, clear and direct a manner as possible. And I always wonder whether he was inductive or deductive about the rules that he puts forth in it. I mean, I always wonder, at least reading it, whether his rules, the rules that Orwell lays down in that essay are inductive or deductive. I mean, you know, very good lucid writing is also conversational. It's not forced. It doesn't feel programmatic. It doesn't feel as though someone is writing with the Chicago Manual of Style directly in mind, Um, though at key junctures they may consult it. Was it that Orwell understood and had been taught going in that you obey five or six edicts? Or did he write so naturally well, and then retrospectively, he looked at what he had done and said, well, you can derive from what's strong about my writing, these handy five or six things to guide you. As an editor, I'm curious to hear what your reaction to this piece was. Oh, well, I think that's such a good question about inductive versus deductive reasoning. And I, I think my favorite moment in this essay, which I agree is very well written and wry and playful about the prejudices and crotchets of its author in a way that makes it all very thought-provoking and digestible rather than enraging, is the emphasis that Lorenzen places on diction. The fundamentally all great writing is about diction, cadence in your ear, and how how you can create enticing rhythms with your language that convey meaning in effective and sometimes economic ways. And of course, bracing directness, active verbs, and a lack of adverbs can be very powerful and vigorous. But I think one of the things I like about the essay is that it both subjects the kind of corpus of the English language to scrutiny. I think Lorenzen begins with the premise that perhaps adverbs are creeping up on us and we're living in an, a grotesque adverb heyday. But then he does the research and realizes that most adverbs have withered away and that indeeds and moreovers are departing and that in general our language is getting a little bit plainer. Um, and then he also begins to investigate and look into some of the great adverb users of the 19th century, including he finds a great quote from Henry James, where a sentence begins, at present, obviously, nevertheless, which he presents initially as utterly comical, but then uses as the kind of opener to the concluding paragraph of his piece in a way that has its own rhythm. And the rhythm and cadence of it is more ornate and a little bit fussy, but also sort of charming in its evocation of precision and ditheriness at the same time. (laughs) And, you know, fundamentally, language is a tool that can be used in many ways, and there's no... There's no one set of rules. So I sort of liked the generous-hearted note upon which this piece concluded. I think we do live in an increasingly adverbial age, and it's largely due to the internet, that the internet has has definitely pushed written prose, whether it's published in print or online, in a more conversational direction. And people use adverbs in conversation a lot, especially younger people who are who want to intensify what they're saying. So we have a lot of incredibly, amazingly, totally, literally. You know, these are there are these these sort of exaggerating adverbs that we associate with young, excited people pressing a point who maybe are not in the course of their conversation necessarily always able to come up with the perfect verb. And um, 
I find myself constantly fighting this desire to qualify everything, to say this is mostly this or largely this or, you know. A defensive mm. adverb. Yeah, it's because if you – the strong statements that we think of as good writing are often really too categorical to accurately describe something. And there's always going to be this person that comes along and says – yeah, yeah, yeah. What about this? What about that? And and so you find yourself <laughs> protecting is that, yourself. Is that, that the same person who didn't like Preacher for being too violent? Uh, no, that person was like, oh. oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is like, you know, you're just the pedant, the, the kingdom of, of pedantry that, that lives eternally on the internet. And I love the idea of like a Laura Miller fuss budget wine uh, the taxonomy of, of yeah, fuss budgets. We need a Laura Miller soundboard of <laughs> yeah. people responding to things on the internet. <laughs> I like it. So I find myself in a, when writing in this constant tension between wanting to use make really strong statements and then recognizing that they're not completely accurate and that it's far easier for someone to pester me about that than it used to be or to legitimately complain that it's too – Sweeping. Uh, one of the greatest academic experiences of my life was that I was a writing fellow in college. And before you became a writing fellow, which was like a, a writing tutor that was embedded within classes. So people had to come to you instead of it being the ones who just sought you out, mm-hmm. which was kind of great. We did this really intensive semester-long curriculum entirely about writing and language and and the kind of inner workings of text. And it was so fun, so nerdy. And one of the assignments they had us do was like a complete syntactical review of a long essay you'd written. So I took some history paper I'd written for an intellectual history class my freshman year and, you know, with like 20,000 different color pens went through and figured out all the adverbial phrases and the clauses. And you could kind of, I mean, in some ways it was like a kind of digital humanities without the digital part. We'll get to that in our plus segment. But it was this like mathematical review of the parts of speech that I relied upon. And what I discovered was that I was an overly solicitous host, that my metaphor for myself as a writer is that I wanted everyone to be really comfortably situated in every sentence. And I kind of kept repeating, you know, in this decade, in this time, in this place, like in every sentence, there was a lot of orienting furniture, adverbial clause furniture of kind of where and how you should consider this next bit of information or argument. And I just found that the my language was very cluttered with these like little orienting points, which may sound totally natural, may have been totally natural, given that I was a history student primarily. And that's part of what you do in a history paper. But it was so fascinating to encounter the raw data of your own writing style and realize that this sort of solicitousness that the reader never lose their place in any moment sucked out the kind of vim and gusto and forward motion of the points I was trying to make and that actually you could kind of rely upon them to trust that they were in the 1890s for that whole paragraph, in fact. And and did you're not alone in that metaphor. I've often said to people that great editors are like great party hosts. So, <laughs> Steve, do you issue adverbs? I believe I do, yeah. The, one of my favorite moments by far in Spotlight, a movie that I adored throughout, was when they're finally editing the copy the final copy of the first spotlight piece exposing the catholic church and leif schreiber leif schreiber is playing this great sort of stolid stone-faced editor in chief is sitting there reading it he's occasionally pruning it a little bit and he, and his pencil just makes this 
swift little tick on the page and he goes adjective and you know you know if you're a journalist or whatever you know that he just struck out an adjective because just get rid of them i mean look i would say semicolons m dashes adjectives and adverbs are the enemies of prose in the internet age when there's just a lot of people writing and a lot of outlets for them to be published in and all uh, of them Dashes, semicolons, adverbs, and adjectives? No, but you have to make sure they don't proliferate. I mean, you know, I think the great struggle of writing is you are placing your own stupidity on the page. And it maybe there are some people for whom writing is easy, but I, I doubt very many of them are good writers. And And this mirror to your glaring stupidity sits in front of you in the form of your own prose. And you're fighting against it in the other direction. And that often then creates false inflation and self-importance, which rides most easily upon semicolons and adjectives and adverbs. And it's this attempt to alleviate yourself from your own intellectual ugliness that results in the pomposity of language that that characterizes most bad bad writing by people who are otherwise capable of being good writers. So I understand the virtue of policing yourself in the other direction, you know, placing yourself in this sort of murderous vice between banality, right? Um, writing things that no one will want to read because they're so self-evident and inflated diction to cover up for the fear of banality. And somewhere in between, you have to also try to make it sound like a normal human being conversing intelligently. And um, that's why writing is fucking hard. And it should always be said that, um, you know, Orwell comes out with these, you know, commandments, but the last of which should never be forgotten, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. And to that, Lawrence, and I think generously has, has, has pointed out that Henry James travestied these rules completely upside down and sideways. And probably to a degree unconsciously, too, to use an adverb. Whereas Nabokov uh, played with them, you know, joyously and knew exactly what he was doing and was the genius who was able to write badly in the service of um, doing something like a composer using dissonance, you know, strategically. But anyway, um, so I never know what to make of uh, all of which is to say I have no no idea what to make of rules, um, how important it is to follow them going in or, or apply them retrospectively when you look at your prose and edit it. But having to write sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys both stipulate a, a ritualistic thing you do after you finish a thing where you hope that are there words you go after or or ticks that you try to expunge before you pass it along to your editor? If, for me, I'm constantly trying to describe the way a written narrative can be completely immersive and, and make you feel like you're caught in like a current, you know, what, what people say is absorbing and grossing and thralling, you know, <laughs> like there are all these words and they're all totally legitimate. It's just that because they get used over and over again to describe the same experience, they get kind of worn out. So I don't I don't use them to begin with. I just try to find some metaphorical way to convey the sensation of being sucked into this narrative so that it seems real in some way. And that's the hardest. And then there are things like, you know, elegant and deft and, you know, um, and they're mostly words that, that they start, like uh, they come up and then I don't, I don't go back and take them out. They come up and then I just sit there for a long time trying to think of something different to say. And then the worst of all book reviewing words that literally kryptonite for, should be for every book reviewer is luminous 
Mm. <laughs> I love your misuse of literally, though. That was great. <laughs> no, Steve, the slate position on literally is that it is an acceptable intensifier. It's my intensifier. Oh, yeah. fuck literally. Oh my no, come on. That, that argument that's was settled like the, 10 years ago. <laughs> that's literally the stupidest but thing I've heard. I literally <laughs> published the most persuasive piece on it. I will send it to you. you. Oh, oh, gosh. I'm so sorry. I missed it. All right. Do you want to know what my tick yes, is? Yes, please. That, okay. Uh, the word massive. I'm writing a book that's about massive inequalities uh, of wealth and massive disparities of political uh, inf- levels of influence. And so apparently I need to use the word massive in every third sentence in order to describe just how massive it is. <laughs> and if I, if I, I swear to God, I have to like, I have to set a number. And at this point it could be as high as a thousand to limit my use of the word massive in my manuscript because it's it's so massively fucking pervasive that um i just want to i just want to shoot myself so anyway um i i have to i have to like use it once in the introduction in order to indicate how massive these disparities are and then just let them speak for themselves i hope that you get that as a blurb from some like some like kind of cryptic you know saint figure in the field i'm not sure who the person would be but someone who like never speaks to the Press. I want them to blurb your book and have the blurb just be massive. <laughs> <laughs> My thing that I do just briefly, and of course I do this less than either of you since I don't primarily write, um, but I think some listeners might be interested in this because I'm not sure they'll all be familiar with the convention. In journalism, you avoid reps. Don't want to repeat any words. In Enjoy any word reps. A, a, yeah. Word reps. You don't want the, the any repeats within um, – uh, the vicinity of each other within a piece. And I sort of prefer not to have any unusual word reps throughout the typical length of a slate piece if I'm writing like 600 to 1,200 words. And again, it's that ear thing. It's like once the thing is done, I read it out loud to myself like two or three times and find if I find little echoes in it or, or reps, I like to get rid of the reps. No reps. No reps. <laughs> don't like them in the gym. Don't like them in my prose. <laughs> They're worse in the gym though. All right. Well, anyway, the piece is uh, could we just – lose the adverb already it's uh, up on vulture new york magazine uh, by christian lawrenson uh very curious to hear what our listeners uh, rhetorical ticks are when they write um tell us at facebook.com slash culture fest all right well now is the moment on our podcast where we talk about our other other sponsor julia turner what do we have the culture gap fest is also brought to you by open account a podcast that gets personal about making losing and living with money How much money do you make? How big is your savings account? These are some of the most personal and maybe uncomfortable questions that someone can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On Open Account, a podcast created by Umqua Bank, host Sujin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. You'll hear an NBA star talk about his first professional paycheck, a Daily Show producer recall his parents penny-pinching, and a husband and wife duo discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small businesses. And that's just the first three episodes. Open Account is available wherever you get your podcasts, so download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable with your money. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Julia Turner. What do you have? Well, we discussed it a little bit last week. And I was somewhat cowed by the critical opinion of Laura Miller, which is no doubt correct. However, I really enjoyed Eligible by Curtis Sittenfeld. And well, I'm doing not against it. I know you're not against it, but you did raise some completely fair critiques of the difficulties of updating the plot of Pride and Prejudice for the modern era. However, speaking of being caught in an inexorable current of delightful prose, I just devoured Eligible. If you are 
you know, stuck reading something ponderous or have been like frittering away your brain cells, reading tiny short things everywhere. And you just would like to be caught in the warm embrace of a novel and like snug it for a couple days before you let it go. Highly, highly recommend Eligible. I think Curtis Sittenfeld is such an interesting writer. I think Prep is one of the best novels of the last 50 years. I think that, you know, the other books for which she's known, American Wife, which is sort of a Laura Bush story, and now Eligible, uh, which have been the big successes, which is based off of Jane Austen, have these kind of, they're like this filigree experiment with an existing story, which is well within her rights to do, but I think sometimes undercuts the power of what she's doing because it's like, how original is it? You took the bones of Laura Bush's life and you did this empathetic imagining into her head or you you know, took the beloved venerated story of Elizabeth and Darcy and you updated it for modern Cincinnati. It sort of undersells her, the kind of gimmicks of her prose. But I just think she's such a terrific writer. I recommend Eligible. Cool. Um, Laura, what do you got? Well, last week we were talking about poor Kate Beckinsale being completely associated with the Underworld film series and um, fighting werewolves and vampires. Or you know, We weren't really clear which side she was on or whether there was a side. She was down there with them. <laughs> she was down there she was with, two, two, with a pistol in each hand and a leather catsuit. And I just wanted to give a shout out to an early – performance of hers in an adaptation of a book I really love, which is Stella Gibbons' Cold Comfort Farm. She's fantastic in that, is one of my favorite literary characters of all time, this woman named Flora Post, a young woman who loves Jane Austen and winds up having to go live with these relatives on this farm that it becomes this whole parody of a certain kind of earthy, rural sort of slightly shocking storytelling of the late 19th and early 20th century in England. Um, it's just a hilarious, delightful performance of hers in exactly this sort of Lady Susanish role, only she's the heroine, and she just fixes everything. The farm has the Stark at her. It's Cold Comfort Farm, and the Stark adders live there, and she just comes and fixes all of their problems with her no-nonsense modern womanhood. I saw that movie like in the theaters, like at the Cherie in Cambridge when I was in high school, or I'm sure IMDb will prove me wrong about the time frame. But uh, And I'd completely forgotten that Kate Beckinsale had a lead role. And actually, one of our listeners wrote in as well to say, how dare you besmirch Kate Beckinsale (laughs) in this manner? Uh, She was so great in Cold Comfort Farm. So I apologies to Kate Beckinsale and her associates, and I will pop that back in my Netflix queue because it's been it's a while. It's so good. I love it. I've watched it like five or six times. Ah, fantastic. All right. Well, I'm endorsing this is a just a big, fat, wet hat tip to um, uh, Chris Eigenman, one of our listeners who um, sent me this video. And it is indeed just totally mesmerizing if you're at all a fan of the jazz pianist Bill Evans, who just, if you're not, you ought to be. I mean, Evans... It's so lightsome and melancholy at the same time. Um, it's perfect he, for a rainy Sunday afternoon. It, it very much so. And you know, one of his best albums is Sunday at the Village Vanguard. He, he's just a beautiful, beautiful musician. And there's a um, online, we'll link to it, there's this 45-minute kind of documentary rehearsal session of him warming up for, uh, I think, what must have been a televised concert of his, a trio in 1966. He's still at the total height of his powers, which he later squandered to heroin, uh, tragically. But anyway, it's in, I believe, in Oslo. And there, 
enormously enormously there we go they're very they're being solicitous of um his host are being solicitous of bill evans treating him like the god that he is he's in this lovely suit with a little narrow necktie it's such a period piece and he, he's gracious uh, and then he begins to play and he goes into that fugue state and bill evans made a piano float up into the sky in a way that no one has before or since and watching him do it is remarkable i highly recommend it for anybody who cares about such things all right well um laura thank you so much thank you julia thank you thanks steve uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of that network, the Panoply Network. You can check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Laura Miller, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you soon. Hey, I you know, you know that thing we were talking about yesterday? Yeah. That finally ends up... Uh, Oh. Just chord. <laughs>